0: of Jesus without bumping into this discussion about baptism, not not just once or twice, but over and over again, you're going to find this discussion, this this entity, uh, uh, this tenet of faith as it related to the early Christians. Baptism was important to early Christianity, and it was practiced by the early Christians. Christians. The question is, what does it mean today, and is it really something that we ought to be concerned about? I want to tell you, there, there is a growing sentiment among the spiritual but not religious mindset. There's a growing sentiment that baptism has been greatly uh, over, overrated, and it's been overemphasized, and uh, that it really... Uh, it really doesn't hold the place of significance and importance that has been ascribed to it by many people. And I would tell you, among, among those who are uh, growing up in the tradition of uh, the of first century Christianity uh, understanding, uh, those who would be associated with churches of Christ... There's a growing sentiment in a younger generation that baptism has been greatly overrated. And and I would tell you, in some circles, it is just being not just put on the side, but it is being almost summarily dismissed by some regarding its importance. And the idea has been, we have just really said too much. And we, we focus too much on baptism. And, and we place too much emphasis on baptism. And that's really, that, that's not what the essence of Christianity is all about. We just need to go into the world and show them what love really is. And I would tell you we do need to do that. And what we need to do is just serve people and make their lives better. And I would tell you that Christians ought to serve people. And uh, the lives of other people ought to be better because of the presence of Christians. But I'm also going to tell you this morning that one of the reasons there is this growing sentiment and and this rumbling noise, even among those who profess to be New Testament Christians, uh, about the overplay of baptism is because there's also... Some remarkable, uh, I want to say this appropriate, some remarkable lack of knowledge regarding the biblical teaching of baptism and biblical and religious history for the past 2,000 years. Ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're living in, a, in an age of profound chronological snobbery, and we need to get old. We need to get over ourselves. And we need to get over this mentality that we have come to a moment of enlightenment that for 2,000 years, those who have come before us, as much as they tried, they just didn't get it. And this morning I city as we begin, we're we're not nearly as enlightened as we fantasize ourselves to be. Nor have we in our lifetime come to discover biblical truth that for 2,000 years was hidden to other people. So let's be honest about that. And let's acknowledge that there is some value and understanding what the early Christians understood, the early Christians who were receiving their understanding directly from Jesus and from the mouths of his own apostles. And, And let's be humble in acknowledging that there were capable, intellectually strong individuals who lived before us. And they studied the Bible, and they had thoughts and understandings about what the Bible says concerning baptism. Already by the third century, there, there were some realities that were beginning to challenge the, we might say, the traditional understanding of baptism, there was a there was a scholar uh, in North Africa. I thought about this this morning. I was thinking about Frank headed over to Africa. Novation was in Africa in the third century, and uh, he, he really believed himself to be enlightened. He he was uh, he was quite the student, and, and he was so smart. He got smarter than. The bosses that he worked for up in the big city. And he got himself in trouble because he began trying to tell them that they just didn't really understand the way it really was. And before it was over, he completely lost his faith. And uh, after he became a heretic and was. really the very antithesis of what he had once been, he became very sick. And when he became very sick, and he was on his deathbed, and it seemed imminent, his death seemed imminent, guess what he rethought? He rethought his faith. And he rethought some things about the existence of God and the deity of Christ and the teaching of the New Testament. And the year was 251 A.D., 253, sometime about the middle of the third century. And he wanted to be baptized. But he was gasping for his last breaths. He could not so much as lift his hand. so he persuaded others to come and pour water on him in the bed and call it baptism. Now, that was the beginning of the discussion. And let me say to you, that started, uh, as it were, that started a theological riot among those who were... Students of the Word. There was a wholesale rejection of that idea in the beginning. It's not going to be until the 8th century, sometime around 733 A.D. uh, Pope Stephen II, he declared, that only in extreme cases could someone be baptized in that manner because the teaching of the Bible was immersion. And then it wasn't until the 13th century that the Roman church finally declared in a pontifical decree that the mode of baptism was indifferent. Thirteen centuries after Christ. But there, there are a couple of things that ought to impress you about that. One is that in the first century, the second century, the third century, here's a man who was well studied in Biblical teaching. And he's on his deathbed. And suddenly, he is insisting, even though he, he's taking his last breath, he is insisting that he must be baptized. And everyone around him is telling him, uh, You're dying here just in a few minutes. It's, it's almost over for you. You can't be baptized. And he said, Get some water, pour it on me, do something. Because he understood and believed with all of his heart and passion in that moment that baptism mattered. And he did not want to die without it. For whatever misunderstandings he may have had, he understood that baptism was important and it mattered to his eternal salvation. You fast forward to the eighth century, when Stephen the when he was uh, when he decreed that only in cases of, of of extreme circumstances could baptism be administered this way. I'm telling you, why was there a concession made? Because there was this strong conviction that baptism matter. That's so, all so I'm saying to you. And then in the 13th century, we're still discussing baptism. And then finally there is this decree that the mode of baptism it is different, but baptism matters. And so it's a bit disingenuous in the 21st century. For well, the Johnny come lately is to run along in their simplicity, say, oh, baptism is not a big deal. It's not a big deal about being a Christian. All of history stands up to say, that's just not so. Six things you need to know about baptism as you talk with folks about this. Number one. We'll just start right here. Baptism was important to Jesus. And and I would say to you this morning, if there was nothing else to say about baptism other than this, it's enough. Folks, we are disciples of Jesus. We want to say what he said. We want to think what he thought. We want to do the things that he has done. We want to be like Jesus. I'm saying to you this morning, baptism mattered to Jesus do you remember in Matthew the third chapter? In our scripture reading this morning? In Matthew the third chapter, Jesus comes to be baptized of John. And John said, I can't be bapti- I can't be baptizing you. I need to be baptized of you. You want to baptize me? Jesus said, No. I want to fulfill all righteousness. And somehow in the mind of Jesus, in the mind of God, fulfilling all righteousness included the act of baptism. This is the very beginning of the ministry of Christ. It was almost his public announcement of his ministry. He comes to the Jordan to be baptized of John. I have come to fulfill all righteousness. The Christ is here. The heavens open, and the, and the Father declares, This is my beloved Son. The beginning of his ministry. During the ministry of Christ, guess what he talked about, among other things? Baptism. And you remember what he said to Nicodemus when Nicodemus came to him by night? Jesus said, you must be born again. Unless a man is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then in in verse, uh, John the third chapter, that same chapter dropped down to about verse 21 or verse 22. You're going to see that Jesus and his disciples and John and his disciples... We're teaching and baptizing. Jesus was teaching and baptizing. So I'm saying to you, at the beginning of his ministry, baptism was important. During his ministry, he taught about baptism. He was baptizing. At the end of his ministry, just before he ascended and went back to the Father, what did he say? He said... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm affirming to you this morning. At the beginning, during the duration of his ministry, and at the end of the ministry. Baptism was important to Jesus. So I'm asking you, is it important to you? When you hear someone today who's shoving aside the discussion about baptism as if that is something passé, or that is something for the little children, or it's something for those who, you know... They're sweet people, but they they don't really understand. I, I'm saying, when someone has that attitude, what are you going to say to Jesus? Baptism was important to Jesus. The second thing I want to say to you about baptism is it was taught and practiced by first century Christians. And the reason that matters is because this was the apostolic period. This was the period of time when Jesus... On apostles were declaring the gospel of God. Those that gathered at Caesarea Philippi, and they are beholding at there at Caesarea Philippi. They're they beholding all of these pagan images at Pam. including the worship of the goat. And Jesus is looking at all of this religious idolatry and superstition. He's surrounded in a, in a culture of ignorance about God. And, and he says to his own disciples, who do people say that I am? Right, look at all of this. Who do people say that I am? Well, they say that you're Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, come from the dead. But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Ha, what a statement. And let me tell you, with the backdrop of all of those idols and shrines There at Caesarea Philippi, when you're you're there today, you will see carved into the cliff, into the hillside, surrounding there, the mouth, the beginning of the Jordan River. You you will see carved in there all of these caves, it looks like little caves that are there. And in each one, a shrine, an altar to a god, to a deity. False gods, dead gods They could not speak. They could not act. They they could not function. Who am I, Jesus said. And Peter said, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood do not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter upon this rock. I will build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevent it, are not going to prevail against it. And I'm going to give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you uh, shall uh, loose on earth shall have been loose in heaven. And what was Jesus saying? He is saying, I am given to you the authority. The things that you bind are the things that are bound in heaven. The things that you list are the things that are loosed in heaven. Apostolic authority. What did Jesus say when he commissioned them? He said, all authority has been given to me. Jesus was giving it now to the apostles. In heaven and on earth, go ye therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so throughout the teachings of the apostles through the book of Acts and throughout the writings of the apostles in the epistles, you're going to see baptism. The third thing I would say to you is this. Baptism and circumcision have one specific point of commonality, and that is the removal of the flesh. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the apostle Paul makes that parallel between baptism and circumcision. When he talks about Baptism being the circumcision of the heart. We're talking about a spiritual circumcision. Now, I want to tell you, it is a mistake to say that circumcision, uh, I bet baptism is for Christians what circumcision was for the Jews. That, That is not the case. It's not an exact parallel. But there is a parallel to be made. There was the cutting away of literal flesh, and the Apostle Paul said, In baptism, you are separating yourself from the flesh, as it were. The flesh being used to talk about sin, spiritual sin, the spiritual flesh. And it means that when you are baptized into Christ, you are going to change in your life. Because you're cutting out of your life, you're cutting off from your life. The things that are inconsistent with a disciple's life. You are putting off those things so that you can put on the character and the nature of Christ. The fourth thing you need to understand is that baptism is immersion. There's a difference between translation and transliteration. The word baptize in the New Testament, is not a translation. It is a transliteration. Someone says, well, that sounds almost the same, but oh, oh, what, what, what do you mean? When you translate a word, you convert the meaning of a word from one language to another. Another. You convert the meaning of the word. That's what a translation is. A transliteration is when you are merely converting the text from one script to another script, it doesn't change the meaning, it doesn't explain the meaning. And so, the word baptize, if you go to the original language and you want to translate it, it means to immerse. And baptism is immersion. And ladies and gentlemen, that's why for 13 centuries, even among those who had Obvious and serious misunderstandings about some of the most fundamental doctrines of Christianity. That's why, for 13 centuries, they still understood that baptism means immersion. And it was a long time before there could be any official concession. That that's not the mode of practice that should be followed. Baptism is immersion in the New Testament. When Philip baptized the eunuch, they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so the Apostle Paul said, if you're asking the question, shall we continue in sin so that grace can abound? God forbid, it means that you don't even understand your baptism. Do you not know that we who have been baptized, into, we have died to sin. We are buried with him, therefore, through baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might rise to walk in newness of life. Come on. If you're asking the question, we're Christians now, saved by grace, can we continue to sin? Paul said, you don't even understand what baptism was. It was a spiritual circumcision. You were cutting off You were separating yourself from that behavior. You were, as it were, putting to death that way of life. And you were being born anew into a different life. Baptism is a burial. It is an immersion. It is a symbol. One says, well, I have a friend who said that baptism is an outward sign. It is. It is an outward sign. It's an outward declaration. It's not only that, but it is that. In Romans chapter 6, Paul said, It is, it is a sign or a symbol of a burial because the old man of sin is being buried. It is a sign or a symbol of being united with Christ. Someone says, I have become a Christian. What does that mean? It means that I'm walking with Christ. What does that mean? It means that Jesus and I are one. What does that mean? And when did that start? And Paul said, it's no longer I that live. It's Christ who's living and me. In Galatians 3 and verse 27. He said, Don't you understand that as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ? Baptism is a symbol, as it were, of being united with Christ. And Peter says, It is a like figure. The like figure whereunto. We are now saved. What? <clears throat> well, he was talking about how the water separated Noah and his family from the sin and the degradation of the earth that God was destroying. What separated Noah and his family from the sin and the degradation of the earth was the water that did. And and Peter said, the baptism is the life victory. It is. It is is the plea. It is the appeal of a a good conscience toward God. What are we appealing for? We're appealing for our salvation. Baptism has defined objectives. Jesus said, I want to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. I want to tell you that's a good objective for being baptized. The Apostle Peter said, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the remission of your sins. That's a good objective. And those that received the word were baptized. And Paul said in Galatians 3, that baptism is what puts you into Christ. And that's a good objective, to be in Christ. And Peter said, it is the like figure which doth now save us. The appeal of our conscience toward God. And that is a good objective for being baptized. Ladies and gentlemen, baptism has been a part of Christianity from the very beginning. And this idea today that that baptism is for those who are still spiritually, you know, way back in the dark ages. Or those who just don't get it. Or for those who just don't want to serve in the They're expressing something that betrays a serious lack of knowledge and understanding. Baptism was important to Jesus. Now I'm telling you, if you're serious about being a follower of Jesus, what's important to Jesus ought to be important to you. Baptism is consistent with first century Christianity. It involves the separation from fleshly sin. It is, it is observed by immersion in water. It is the symbol of our union with Christ, our death to sin, our new birth, resurrected to be the children of God it is God's way to the remission of sins and our new life in Christ. If you're here this morning and you have never, on the basis of your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, with a penitent heart, if you have never submitted yourself to be baptized into Christ, what a wonderful moment for you to do that right now. And if you're a child of God and needs to come home, don't you come while we stand together and sing.